My name is Mitch, and I'm an associate in Herbert Smith Freehills International Arbitration Group based in Singapore. Over the last few months, we have been producing a podcast series. We've been talking about legal and practical issues arising from the collapsing oil price. Today, I'm joined by two energy specialists from our Singapore office, Tom and Arena. Tom's a partner in our international arbitration group, and Arena is off council in our corporate group. Good morning, both. Good morning. So many of our clients and listeners will be familiar with the reasonable and prudent operator standard, or RPO standard. It's, it's really a standard feature incorporated into long-term oil and gas contracts, and it regulates the manner in which operators must perform their obligations. So, Arena, in this um, oil price context, uh, what type of issues are we seeing in terms of the RPO standard? Thanks, Mitch. That's a great question. Um, as we all know, the current COVID-19 situation has resulted in historically low oil prices, as well as significant oversupply and dep depressed demand in the market. Against this backdrop, a number of oil and gas companies have announced that they are looking to cut their capital expenditure. At the same time, we are seeing a number of oil and gas companies looking at implementing decarbonisation strategies. And therefore, decarbonisation projects are now starting to compete with the traditional projects for, for limited internal cap capital. Uh, as a result, operators of development stage projects will therefore need to consider the RPO obligation in the context of deciding whether they want to proceed with development of an upstream oil and gas project. And they will need to balance their RPO obligations, which they owe to the pre-venturers, against the internal demands and internal capital constraints. On the other hand, around the operational projects, the RPO standard is also important um, and the operators of operational projects will need to bear the RPO standard in mind when they decide whether to shut in or reduce production as a response to the decreased demand uh, or whether they can, in fact, declare force majeure under their various contracts because quite often the RPO standard is incorporated in, into those contracts and um, an event needs to be beyond control of a party acting as an RPO in order to qualify as a force majeure event. And failure to comply with the RPO standard can expose operator to liability on either under the JOAs or under the other contracts that they are party to. I agree, I think that's something we've seen come up on a couple of recent pieces of advice, um, for example, where the operator has incurred expenses and is trying to work out whether those are going to be recoverable from the joint accounts. Um, this can be um, quite a sort of practical way in which the differences between participants um, get um, get flushed out um, and put on the table. I suppose just one other example I would mention that um, will be familiar to listeners is that um, these obligations also often arise in the long-term sale contracts. You know, there's a case we're going to talk about in a moment, Scottish Power, which was a 20-year gas sale contract. Um, and the sellers have undertaken a obligation to operate the facilities in accordance with the reasonable and prudent operator standard um, as part of that long-term sale contract. So um, plenty of places this comes up. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, failure to comply with an RPO standard, for example, in the context of operations can um, be quite an important factor around whether, the, whether an operator can, in fact, charge the expenses incurred in the course of the operation to the joint account or whether they need to bear them as a as a sole risk participant. So it, it is an absolutely 
an area that can give rise to a number of hooks and a number of liability. Tom, you mentioned the Scottish Power uh, case before. Do you, are there any other cases that provide guidance to operators um, making decisions um, and in terms of how they can comply with the RPO standard? Sure. So there aren't as many um, authorities as um, we might like in this area. There are a couple, but they all arise in quite different contexts. Um, Scottish Power is a 2015 English High Court decision, and it's probably the leading case in this area. Um, and it, as I mentioned a moment ago, it involved a, um, a very long-term gas sale contract. Scottish Power was the buyer of the gas, um, and the sellers of the gas were the um, participants in the Andrew Field in the North Sea um, in England. And as I've already mentioned, under the, this long-term project, it was a project for the life of the facilities, um, for all of the production from the Andrew Field. And the, um, each of the sellers who were the participants in the field had undertaken to um, maintain and operate the facilities and production facilities and the um, et cetera um, to the reasonable and prudent operator standard. And the um, circumstances of the case, it was a claim by Scottish Power for non-delivery of gas during a period where the Andrew Field was shut in. And the Andrew Field had been shut in because the participants in that field had decided to tie back in a nearby field. Um, and that was a very straightforward commercial decision for the participants in the Andrew Field. Um, the problem was it was of no benefit to Scottish Power, who um, were not going to um, get any additional gas or any um, more preferential terms as a result of tying in the extra field um, because the Scottish Power um, buyer was only entitled to um, production from the Andrew Fields. And so we had a mismatch between the buyer's interests um, and the seller's interests. And this played out in the cases um, because the claim by Scottish Power was there had been a failure um, by the sellers, by the participants in the Andrew Field, um, to operate and maintain um, the Andrew facilities in accordance with the reasonable and prudent operator standard. And we get a few lessons from this case about how these will play out in practice. Um, the first is that it is an objective standard, and so we're not looking at um, subjectively what did um, the different participants think or intend as such. We're looking at this objectively, what would a reasonable and prudent objective operator do in these circumstances? But I'll come back a bit later to the importance of that aligning with um, the motivations of the participants for their actions. Um, the second point to um, remember is that the RPO standard is a pretty operator-friendly standard, particularly when it comes to commercial issues, because the reasonable and prudent operator standard does allow the operator to take account of their own financial interests in reaching a decision. And so to take this example, the court found that it was clearly in the seller's um, own financial interests to tie in um, the second field to Andrew, um, and so they had met the reasonable and prudent operator standard, if you were just looking at that narrow issue. Um, but that leads me to the third lesson from this case, which is you have to look at how the RPO standard fits into the contract. And so, for example, in the Scottish Power case, the contract required the sellers to um, maintain and operate the facilities to the reasonable and prudent operator standard. And the court found that um, there was essentially a two-stage analysis. The first was whether the sellers had tried to maintain and operate the facilities. And second was whether in doing so, they had complied with the reasonable and prudent operator standard. 
and the sellers fell down on the first point because they hadn't actually tried to maintain and operate the facilities during the period of the shut-in. Instead, they deliberately shut in the facilities um, for their own reasons and for reasons that didn't benefit Scottish power. And so they never met that threshold issue. And so the reasonable and prudent operator test um, never actually arose. Um, so a lot to learn there um, and also come back to the language of the contract. Tom, you, you mentioned um, the fact that you know, the commercial decisions of the, or commercial objectives of, of the parties do come into play in deciding whether uh, something, whether the operator was acting um, as an RPO. I guess what what can be quite complicated at times is um, sort of the balancing act between an operator's own commercial interests and the commercial interests of the contractual counterparties. Um, you know, as we all know, operators operate a project on behalf of all of their co-venturers and therefore you know, they represent not just their own interests, but the interests of the co-venturers as well. To, to what extent then does the operator have to take into account um, other parties' commercial interests and in particular their co-venturers' um, commercial interests, given that quite often um, the interests of the operator and the non-operators can be misaligned particularly in the current price environment and particularly where you are looking at you know, a very large company acting as an operator versus a small company with a much smaller number of projects as a non-operator. Yeah, I think this is something we're seeing coming up um, increasingly often, and I think it will um, keep coming up in the decarbonisation context as well as um, some companies choose to shift away from um, preferring pure returns to accepting lower returns in return for achieving decarbonisation. Um, in the two parts to the answer, um, the first is it's inherent either in the express language of a lot of RPO drafting definitions, um, or it may be implied in some contracts that the RPO standards involves acting um, in good faith. Um, and that means not having an ulterior motive amongst other things. Um, and so I think it's it's important that the um, operator or the, you know, the seller in the example of our long-term gas contract um, has a clear commercial rationale um, that does coherently explain the, the course of action. And, you know, what would likely fail the RPO standard is if the um, operator has some kind of ulterior um, motive um, for taking a course of action, essentially sort of to punish or get revenge um, on a counterparty that wouldn't comply with the standard. Um, the second sort of lens through which we can look at this is that I think the standard does require a sense of balancing where um, you have, for example, an operator with other participants in a long-term contract like a JOA. There will have to be some kind of balancing act undertaken, and it's going to be very important that the operator um, is transparent in gathering information and being clear about what it intends to do um, and giving the other participants an opportunity to make suggestions and pitch in as to what should happen um, and you know to the extent um, all other things are equal for the operator for example I think the standard would likely um, require that the operator choose a path that is more beneficial to the other participants rather than less beneficial um, so there is definitely um, some balancing required although I haven't actually seen this come up in a reported English case in this context but it has come up for example in the Jet2 Airways case um, which is around the operation of an airport um, and whether, for example, an airport had to um, operate in a certain configuration um, for the benefit of a low-cost airline that was flying into the airport 
and the court was very clear there that in this kind of long-term case um, or, or relationship, there was a requirement to um, pay some attention to the interests of the other parties. Um, but it does all depend, of course, on the, the drafting of the contract. Thanks, Tom. So, Irene, if you have a, a, an operator client come to you with a proposed course of action and they're, they're concerned about potentially breaching the reasonable and prudent operator a standard, what practical tips do you give them? What advice do you give them? That, that's, a, that's a question, Mitch. Um, I think there's, there's a number of things we would tell uh, operator clients in that context. And number one is um, the, the operator really needs to consider what their contractual obligations are in terms of um, engagement with other counterparties, in terms of approvals they need from um, other counterparties. And in that context, the operators should assess um, and to the extent possible forecast the implications of the decision that they're going to make, uh, not only on the operator's own position, but also on the position and interests of the counterparties. Um, and whether that's the um, whether that decision is to shut in production or whether that decision is not to proceed with uh, development, the operator should really consider who will be impacted by that decision. And in that context, whether there's anything else, any other remedies or any other course of action that is available to the contractual counterparties. So, for example, in the context of uh, a development project where the operator decides that um, that particular project just would not um, get internal capital support from the operator's organization, in that context, would the other non-operators, for example, be able to proceed with the development um, on a sole risk basis? And, and so availability of alternative course of action for the counterparties um, should be something that the operators take into account in deciding whether what they are proposing to do would comply with the RPO standard. The operators should also not just focus in on what happens under the JOA, but also under other contracts, for example, contracts uh, like long-term uh, offtake agreements, uh, particularly in relation to the operational project. Um, are there, in that context, are there things like minimum volume uh, obligations or take or pay obligations that not just the operator, but the other counterparties would be exposed to? Um, and whether what they're proposing to do would qualify as a force majeure event, for example, to alleviate that liability. So again, in a situation where uh, the proposed course of action would expose the counterparties to liability without an alternative course of action, without an alternative way to mitigate that liability, you know, that course of action may not comply with an RPO standard. Okay, so I'm just, just going to add that. Sorry, I was just going to add that in that context, um, you know, once the operator has identified all these courses of action and the impact, um, there needs to be a balancing exercise done, carried out by the operator to decide what would be, what would produce a better net economic outcome, um, you know, without necessarily foregoing the operator's own commercial interest, but what would, as a sort of, in a holistic picture, what would produce the sort of best net economic outcome? Sorry, Tom, I, I think you we wanted to add there some. I know, I was just going to so I completely agree with all of all of that. I think I would just sort of come back to the importance of transparency and process again, because not only should you be taking all of the steps that Arena has been describing, but this is a situation where ideally you also lay all your cards on the table in terms of communicating with your contract counterparties 
giving them an opportunity to comment and participate. Um, but you also need to make sure that your internal um, processes and decision-making align with um, the reason for taking action that you communicate to your contract counterparties. And we've seen examples of um, parties taking a position that um, they were relying on particular facts to establish the reasonable and prudent operator uh, benchmark had been met. And then when internal disclosure was obtained of their documents relating to the decision, it's clear that actually um, those were not issues that were considered at the time. And that really affected the credibility of the um, attempt to rely on the RPO standard. Um, so you know, be transparent, give everyone an opportunity to pitch in. Um, but also make sure that um, your internal process is all lining up with um, your external communications. Um, otherwise, you may also run into um, good faith issues. And of course, if you need to have a, a candid conversation in the context of seeking legal advice, then um, you know make sure to, to bring in the legal team and give yourself the benefits of privilege. Absolutely, I think that's a, that's a great point, Tom. And I think it, it's important to bear in mind that this is very much a substance over form. Um, question. You know, it, it is not sufficient for an operator to just establish uh, a that they are that they are acting because of a particular reason, and therefore that satisfies the RPO standard. If in fact there is something else coloring the decision, and there is a, an absolutely unrelated uh, ulterior motive for making the decision. Great. Thanks, Arena. Well, it was a pleasure to talk about these issues with you both, and I feel as though we really only just scratched the surface. Um, if any of our listeners have any questions, they should feel free to get in touch because we'd be very happy to answer them. Thanks. Thank you very much. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.